We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Sean Su. It's great to be back. And Dean Karalakis, an affiliated research fellow at the University of Central Lancashire's Centre of Austronesian Studies. Glad to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing the Central Epidemic Command Centre being set to be dissolved on May the 1st after overseeing the coronavirus response for 1,194 days. The Ministry of National Defence set to begin requiring female reservists to undergo military training. The detention of Taiwanese activists Young Yuan and a Taiwan-based publisher in China, the National Federation of Teachers Unions urging the government to scrap what it's calling a misguided bilingual nation plan, Zhu Ming's death by apparent suicide following a prolonged illness sparking a debate over the legalisation of euthanasia, and calls for the government to establish enforceable light pollution regulations. But we'll begin with the Central Epidemic Command Centre holding its final press conference on Thursday ahead of its scheduled disbandment next Monday when the coronavirus will be downgraded from a Category 5 to a Category 4 communicable disease. Now, the centre has been in operation for 1,194 days. And according to the centre head and Deputy Health Minister Victor Wong, all updates on the coronavirus situation from now on will be made by the Centres for Disease Control. Wong says the decision to downgrade the status of the virus and dissolve the Epidemic Command Centre has been made because the coronavirus has now become a flu-like disease and the number of patients developing serious infections or dying is continuing to decline. It also comes as key coronavirus measures, including treatment for patients with serious complications, drug distribution and an annual coronavirus vaccine jab have all basically now been handed over to the medical system here. Now, the Ministry of Health will be taking over the tasks of the Epidemic Command Centre from May the 1st. And officials say the Health Ministry will also be preparing for any changes in the disease's development, such as the emergence of new strains of the coronavirus, while an expert panel will be taking steps to prepare for a possible surge of new cases. Health officials have been stressing that current coronavirus drug prescription rules and clinics for patients who are suffering from long COVID will still be available, while the cost of treatments received by patients with serious complications will still be paid by the government after May the 1st. Now, of course, the Central Epidemic Command Centre was established by the Centres of Disease Control on January the 20th of 2020 as a Level 3 unit, the day before Taiwan reported its first coronavirus case. It was upgraded to a Level 2 unit three days later and to its current... It's it's now past Level 1 status on February the 27th of 2020. So, Sean, an end of an era, and it's like maybe losing an old friend... Oh, yeah. Uh, After three years of this, uh, I think we're all kind of uh, in this habit, right, in this cycle. Um, I remember there was even coverage just uh, last week about how the vast majority of people are still masking up, even though, uh, uh, you know, the policies have been lifted. Now, I think it's turned into a habit. So having this habit suddenly ain't uh, and is going to be uh, a certain thing, right? I feel that people are going to wonder what's the next thing that they're going to hear about every day. That said, I do want to bring up that. Uh, even though the majority of Taiwan is vaccinated with the first and uh, while well, first and second booster shot coverage is about 70, uh, 77% and uh, second booster shot, maybe o- almost a quarter of the population. Uh, but those among uh, the 65 and older group, uh, only about in certain places, only less than 20% of them are vaccinated. Uh, I think Shinju or Miali County has like about 22%. Uh, Hualien 
Allen County, 21%, something like that. So these are low rates. I do still feel that the elderly need to get uh, their game together on that because it's sad to hear uh, continually daily reports that uh, they're the ones that are taking the brunt of uh, uh, the effect of this uh, 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 continuous pandemic. However, that said... Even their numbers are winding down. Even those that are passing and what have you are winding down. So I guess, yeah, it's sort of an end of a thing. Maybe we have better things to look forward to. Uh, can't wait. And Dean, of course, you were actually out of Taiwan away for purposes we won't go into here. But it was when you came back and you actually met the Central Epidemic Command Centre for the first time, the poop had hit the proverbial fan. It was an experience. It was very different. Of course, I, I had uh, the opportunity to travel through Europe, through South America and, and through North America and see the different ways that different governments were handling the same pandemic, essentially. And it was... Uh, it, actually, I found it very efficient, as efficient as it could be. Uh, but, you know, we got to move on. Time moves on. And we've had this period, it's been, like you said, three years, three and a half years, it looks like, 1,197 days. Taiwan, it just makes sense. Taiwan was one of the last to be hit with a really major wave of uh, COVID. And so it makes sense it would be the last to sort of say goodbye to the pandemic measures. So it's it's... Well past time. And Sean, what do you think the general public is thinking? Do you think they're shedding a tear? They're relieved or no one? People maybe stop paying in, an interest into what the Central Epidemic Command Centre was saying on a daily basis some months ago. I think it's about time. I think it's about right that uh, it's it's over. Maybe it could have may have ended a little earlier than that. You know, some will argue for that. That's fine. But you know, I've mentioned before on the show that Taiwan's sort of like slow with opening doors and slow with closing them as well. So I think it's it's all expected. <laughs> now that uh, now that COVID is essentially endemic, which means it's gonna it's like the flu, it's like the cold. I think that was mentioned in the article. Uh, it's just, it's going to be, it used to be cold and flu season, now it's cold, flu, and COVID season. Uh, we can't keep, you know, shutting down the doors. We can't keep uh, having an impact on the economy the way we have uh, if it's something that's, uh, something that's not going to go away. It's just part of life now. It's a new part of life. Yeah. And, of course, Sean, this, the government has said they're still ooing and ahhing about whether regular COVID jabs should be given from next year. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a wait-and-see basis. I mean, the CEC themselves, CECC themselves were formulated as sort of a disaster response. But now that it's come into normalcy, um, sure, I, th I do think uh, if there is a new wave or a new variation, sure. I mean, it's just like the flu now. Um, hopefully, there won't be any more pandemics. I wouldn't want to be back on the show when we're talking about zombies or something. <laughs> so... <laughs> Moving on now, and the Ministry of National Defence this week announced that it will be requiring female veterans to undergo five to seven days of reservist training beginning next month. Now, the first group of veterans will report for training at what's being described as a strategic location in Taoyuan's Bardur district on May the 8th. And the length of training, be it five or seven days, will be depending on their military rank upon discharge. Now, defence officials say the female reservists will undergo the same required training as their male counterparts. And the Defence Ministry announced earlier this year that it planned to 
start asking female reservists to complete the same required reservist training as their male counterparts. Now, the number of female reservists scheduled to undergo this round of training, or the first round of training, rather, has not been released. But apparently, the Defence Ministry has said it will ask a total of 220 female reservists to undergo required reservist training this year. Data shows, as of 2021, a total of 8,915 women were listed as reservists. Now, of course, Dean, there's long been a call for female reservists to also do reservist training. Well, there's long been a call for more participation by women in the military. And, and uh, in fact, I did a little bit of research on this. Uh, and now the, these numbers are old, but when I was doing this research, after the all-volunteer force was brought in, right, these idea that we're going to have to recruit people now as opposed to just conscript them. In other words, we're going to have to compete against uh, corporations and other employers for the best and the brightest among uh, Taiwan's young people. And whereas they could they could barely meet seventy percent of the targeted number of enlistees for men, they had sixty eight percent in I believe it was twenty twelve. They had uh, seven hundred ninety nine billets for females, and they had five thousand three hundred applicants. And so there's an intense amount of interest among women to wear the uniform, to defend their country, uh, and just to take part in that defense of the country. And this is a, an asset that should be leveraged far more than it is being. I also feel that um, this is a good start. Uh, women make about 15% of our active duty personnel in our armed forces, but 220 women are less than 1%. So I feel like this, uh, I, I mentioned just moments ago, Taiwan kind of opens it doors to, uh, its doors to things rather slowly. Uh, I, should, I think given that uh, the potential threats and security issues that ta uh, Taiwan faces, especially from our giant neighbor, um, it's quite important that we up that percentage, percentage to well above that. And what about conscription, Dean? I mean, do you think females should be conscripted like Israel and other countries? It's a discussion worth having. It's a discussion worth having because Israel obviously is in a situation that's slightly analogous to Taiwan. You don't want to draw too many parallels because they are very different. But at the same time, you have a clear and present threat from a, a large, well-equipped military that has stated it wants to take you over. And uh, and again, there's that interest from women in taking part. So, so why not at least have that discussion? We should be having that conversation. I want to add that uh, Taiwan is doing pretty well in comparison to Japan and South Korea, for example, where the rates of the female participation are about three and four percent it's it's not behind it's a little bit behind the United States which is around 15 percent as well uh, so it's it's doing better than you might expect but again there's there's room for improvement oh yeah and I also feel that uh, equal treatment of uh, uh, women soldiers and equal training, uh, you know, should be mandatory in Taiwan. After all, uh, almost all the major military powers in all, around the world, uh, Russia excluded, uh, already have that. You know, United States, Canada, China itself even. So I think uh, let's uh, Taiwan's military should get with the program. It used to be. I mean, in the high schools, kids would go and they would take firearms training. Uh, women, the girls, as well as the boys. Uh, and this is an important skill, I would think, for the uh, citizenry to have. In fact, this is what you're seeing right now. Since the Ukraine war started, and we started looking a little closely at uh, the potential for a Taiwan contingency, as I think they like to call it, is people have been taking it upon themselves to give themselves the kind of training that the government has been hesitant to, to make available. Uh, by taking, you know, emergency first aid training, combat medic training, uh, clearing rooms, uh, firearms use training without actually using real firearms, of course. So there's an intense interest in this. Yeah, we can have that conversation, certainly.
Yeah, uh, actually, speaking of which, I, I do remember that I think the Kuma Academy, which provides this uh, sort of uh, feature for Taiwan, has been well, very well received, including selling out their courses and classes for all these kind of training, which I think is going to be critical. Um, uh, if in the event that China does invade Taiwan, uh, it's important to not only have soldiers that could defend themselves, but as uh, Dean said, uh, having all the first aid training, all that logistical support, that kind of thing is all really important and critical. So again, Taiwan needs to get with the program. And what about female conscription, Sean? I mean, how do you think the public would react to that? The voters, of course, which is all about voters. Whichever party says it, it's going to happen. They're going to be thinking of voters, yay or nay. I think before uh, that happens, there also needs to be a stronger cultural uh, fix, a cultural um, um, acknowledgement from the military in order to be able to uh, handle uh, a quote-unquote co-ed military better on all fronts. Uh, the reason why that I think that's critical is because, for instance, the United States also had challenges uh, Introducing women naval officers uh, or women seamen into uh, uh, their their submarine fleets, so Taiwan needs to do something similar as well. I mean, you're you're talking about a great pool of applicants, which make up half the nation, and we're not we're not using their talents, uh, and, and I feel that that's a pity. So yeah, I mean, down the line, I'm not sure if conscription is exactly the right thing for now. Um, it's a complicated issue, but definitely the culture should be ready for it if the time comes. There's uh, there's a number of issues to look at there. I mean, uh, for one thing, not even if you disagree with having women in combat roles, then there are so many occupations within the military. Even I myself was a was a mechanic in the navy. Uh, no one really expected me to pick up a gun and shoot the bad guy uh, sitting in an engine room. Uh, these and and many of my coworkers and supervisors were women, and let me tell you, they were tough as nails, and we had a lot of respect for them, and they were just quote-unquote, one of the guys. So, yeah, there's a lot of room for more participation uh, from women. And now is the time to look at it, too, because politically, again, since the war in Ukraine started, there's been more of a political uh, acceptance, let's say, uh, for boosting the military, boosting military capabilities, even the the move from a four-month training during conscription period to a year was only possible because it became politically feasible once people started worrying about defense issues. And if people are worried about it, the government can make moves on it. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And moving away from the military now and talking about China. We're going to talk about China. A couple of things in China this week were a couple of arrests there, which are concerning Taiwan and made international headlines. Now, the Mainland Affairs Council on Tuesday slammed the detention of a Taiwanese activist there in China, saying Beijing's willful arrest of Yang Zhe Yuan severely hurts the rights of Taiwanese people and creates fear that will dampen cross-strait relations. The statement came after Chinese state media reported that the country's highest national agency responsible for legal prosecution had granted a request to arrest him. Now, Young had been detained since August the 3rd of last year in the city of Wenzhou on charges of secession. Now, the Mainland Affairs Council says it's been closely monitoring that situation since then and has been working closely with Young's family to offer necessary assistance. However, the council also says that Beijing has so far refused to respond to calls through different channels to release Young and allow him to return to Taiwan as soon as possible. Now, Young served as the vice chairman of the Taiwan National Party, which is rather pro-independence, 
since 2019. Meanwhile, China's Taiwan Affairs Office on Wednesday announced that the founder of the Taiwan-based Gusa Publishing House is also under investigation there for suspected activities endangering national security. That statement came a week after it was reported that Li Yanhe had been detained in Shanghai shortly after he arrived there to visit his family and deal with residency-related issues. Now, he was born in the Chinese province of Liaoning, but he relocated to Taiwan in 2009 and he's since been married to a Taiwanese woman and has held residency here since 2013. Now, apparently, Gu Sa's publications cover a variety of topics, but its content on China is mostly critical of the Chinese government. So, Sean, we're still seeing these. Obviously, one is a Taiwanese national, the other is a Chinese national who has residency here, but they're both going to China having said or done things that could, well, irk Beijing. Oh, indeed, and it's not just limited to these two people. Um, uh, Hong Kong, there was a recently report that a, Hong, a student in Hong Kong was uh, arrested, and she had made uh, not particularly flattering posts while in Japan uh, online about China. So she didn't do that in Hong Kong. But upon a visit, uh, her passport was confiscated. Uh, recently, also, China has increased, uh, passed all these bills lately, especially last Wednesday, um, you know, increasing their scope to essentially be able to almost accuse uh, any foreigner within the country as potentially being a spy. And China is infamous for being a country not only for arbitrary arrests, but also um Anything could be a national secret or considered a secret. Uh, the scope of ultranationalism has expanded to a degree where even people who believe that Taiwan should eventually become a part of China sometimes can be accused uh, by Chinese netizens of not being uh pro-China enough. Uh, so that spiraling out of control means that it's no longer really safe for anybody who has ever criticized China to actually go inside. Right now, this mainly concerns uh, Asian people or, or, Taiwan, or Chinese and Taiwanese, but it could expand. So I do think it does put a dimmer. Uh, I do think it, feel, it basically means that I know the intent. It's supposed to try to make the businessmen or other people that do business in China or have any association with China tone down their language. Language. But in reality, I think the result is going to be a lot of people are going to look elsewhere. Yeah, this is just hostage diplomacy, isn't it? It's what China does. It's the type of system that they have there. So this is them using their system. And we're looking at it from a point of view of people living in a democracy where people have rights, the individuals, the citizens have rights. And we say, hey, what's going on? People don't have rights in China? Well, big surprise. No, they don't. Uh, as a Canadian, I mean, we heard all on the news constantly about the two Michaels that were held by China, uh, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. And they were detained in back in December of 2018. And it was a tit for tat uh, when uh, Canada had arrested Huawei chief financial officer Meng Wanzhou back in uh, December 1st, the previous uh, December of 2018. China said, okay, well, you got one of ours, we'll take a couple of yours. And we'll let them go when you let her go, which is kind of what happened. Of course, it took a couple of years, but this is how they operate. And so it, we should not be surprised that they're operating this way. And uh, while uh, it would be nice to think that we could visit China like in the days, sort of the days before Xi Jinping really had a more revanchist take on China's future, there was this hope and there was this hopefulness that uh, China's increasing economic capabilities would bring it into the sort of the community of uh, responsible nations in the international community, but they've just sort of gone in 180 degrees from there. 
Dean, why do these people travel to China? If you've said something about China or you're pro-Taiwan independence or you, pub you work for a publishing house that publishes bad things about Xi Jinping, why would you go there? So back in the days of, uh, of uh, Bill Clinton, he made a deal with China that basically said, look, all of your um, all of these guys, these political prisoners, prisoners of conscience, we'll take them over to America. We'll help them find uh, uh, refuge in other countries so that they're not a problem for you. And then we thought, so the Clintons thought, they were doing the right thing by assisting these people with their freedom. But at the same time, that serves Beijing's needs because they get rid of the people, they get rid of all of their dissidents who would otherwise infect the minds of the local Chinese people. So we're helping them. By doing that, we're helping them get rid of uh, of their problematic, their problematic activists. Now, these problematic activists want to work in China because that's where they feel they have their mission. Their mission is to promote freedom in China. Their mission is to sell books, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of the press. All of these are very, very good ideas, but you have to go against the government to, uh, to do that. It's also notable that in the past, uh, you know, even members of Students for Free Tibet, uh, executive leaders were able to visit China. Of course, they had to be very careful about who they visited. And of course, uh, the Chinese government was definitely following them and trying to track who they were speaking to. And at that time, in the past, pre Xi Jinping, they thought it was better to know who they were influencing. That is no longer the case. Under Xi Jinping, these people are being, he's sending a strong message, I think, to let everybody know that he expects everyone to fall in line within China and outside of China, which is why even Hong Kong is applying the national uh, security law uh, to outside of its borders. And China is doing the same thing, too. And of course, Dean, it's left Taiwan in a bit of a, a, a funny situation because the Mainland Affairs Council and the Straits Exchange Foundation can jump up and down and go, we'd like them back, please. But... How are they going to do that when the government here doesn't talk to the government there and vice versa? Well, I guess the language of diplomacy is in those uh, press releases and the statements that they make. And I think a lot of it's pro forma. They say, yes, please give them back. But they know as well as we do that uh, it's not a realistic, uh, a realistic outcome unless it turns out to be a quid pro quo and China makes clear exactly what they'll take in exchange for uh, releasing these guys. The, I mean, like you said, this is happening all over the world. I mean, there was just an arrest of the operators of a Chinese police station in New York City. Uh, just a few days ago, if I remember. Now, these police stations, they, they, they don't police anything except members of the Asian American, specifically the Chinese American population living in these cities. We have them in Canada. They have them all over Europe. So China is extending its rule over people who are not even necessarily in the country, who may not even be citizens anymore of the country, but who have immigrated and whose children have been born and grown up in ostensibly free countries. But they think that just because they are ethnically Chinese, that the government in Beijing has the right to dictate what they say and do. And this is just part and parcel of their activities. And Sean, of course, the head of the National Security Bureau this week did come out and say there might be secret Chinese police stations here. Yeah, and I'm not surprised about that. Uh, this kind of uh, many authoritarian nations have done that in the past before. Uh, it's also notable to point out that even uh, when the Kuomintang were in power during the White Terror period, they themselves had uh, cultural associations and organizations overseas that did the same exact thing: look or look at students and see if they made too 
too much noise and what have you. Uh, to have them in Taiwan, of course, there's a sizable uh, uh, Chinese diaspora and expat uh, population here in Taiwan that came after the PRC went into power. So, of course, the PRC is very interested in doing these kind of things. Another thing that I should bring out is that a lot of the people who are arbitrarily detained in China, not just from Taiwan, but in other countries, have noticeably had their families be quiet about this issue. They didn't want to make too much noise because they knew that that would increase the value of uh, these people who are arbitrarily detained or exit banned in China. And therefore, China would then use make it all the more harder to get them back. It's pretty. It's a pretty grim situation. And because that there isn't that much noise made about it, about it especially uh, these are not the only two people from Taiwan that are being uh, 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 exit exit banned or, or quote unquote detained in China. Uh, their families not making that much noise about it only makes it less. Um, Less visible, urgent. less yeah, less visible, less urgent. It seems, and so it isn't in the consciousness of the world. But for those who are doing business with China in in one fashion or another, should be extra wary. And if if uh, uh, you are an activist and you make uh, a lot of statements and you hope for uh, even regime change or regime reform in China, then think twice when you have to transit or go to China. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the National Federation of Teachers Unions is urging the government to scrap what it's describing as its misguided policy to turn Taiwan into a bilingual nation by the year 2030. Now, the call comes as a draft act for the establishment of a bilingual nation development centre under the National Development Council is being reviewed by lawmakers. Well, it actually began being reviewed by lawmakers on Wednesday of this week. Now, a public petition on the council's public policy participation platform calling for the government to drop the policy has has received over 5,000 signatures and it's now met the threshold for requiring a formal response from said government. Now, according to Federation Chairman Ho Chun Liang, along with now being obliged to respond to criticism of its policy, the government should halt the legislation and remove English as a default language of instruction at all non-English classes. While Liao Xianhe of the National Taiwan University was cited by local media as arguing that advances in translation technologies will quickly make the bilingual nation policy irrelevant. He also said that English language ability does not have a direct relationship to economic progress, citing contrasts between the Philippines and Japan for that statement. And the new power party's Claire Wong took the opportunity to accuse the government of pouring money into the bilingual nation initiative since 2018 without having any clear plan for achieving its goals and this at the same time making it more difficult for regular teachers. Needless to say... The government responded, be that in the form of Premier Chen Jianren, who quickly took to Facebook to dismiss all criticisms. And the Premier basically took to social media to say that the proposed establishment of a bilingual nation development centre does not mean that English will be designated as an official language and that Taiwan needs to develop the ability to understand international trends and connect seamlessly with the world. So, of course, Sean, they've actually spent quite a bit of money on this bilingual nation policy. We well, must admit. The money is... is 
definitely an issue. I mean, uh, this is not going to be cheap. Uh, even right now, a lot of schools do not have enough uh, bilingual teachers or English teachers to provide uh, instruction for many of its students, especially in rural areas. Uh, are part- they are particularly disadvantaged. However, I might take a somewhat different point of view where I do think um, uh, initiative in order to improve the English capability of Taiwan is critically important. The reason is because if you are a foreign business and you want to open a business in Taiwan, trying to navigate that without having local language ability is very difficult. Whereas they can just go to Hong Kong and Singapore and get that done in a day or two. And that contrast is a huge problem uh, because for Taiwan's potential future. Number two, I also feel that teachers, you know, uh, really, I, I get it. They were complaining about how it was challenging. It was very tough. But to me, that sounds a little bit like, well, you know, when you hear the stereotypical teenager complaining about, why should I learn math? After all, you know, I have I have software that can do it. I have a calculator. My phone can do it. Why should I learn English? We have translation software. Why should I learn history? We have Wikipedia. Why should we, you know, why should you learn anything when you have the internet? Uh, look, <laughs> the purpose of Bilingual 2030 never was to make every last person on in Taiwan speak English. It was to make, make, basically provide opportunities, uh, uh, not only for Taiwan's businesses, but also for potential students and also for outreach, too. Uh, Jenna Lynn Cody covered in an episode of Taiwan Context uh, several purposes of uh, Bilingual 2030, one of which, um, an example of which was Palestine. Uh, Palestine successfully, I think, uh, helped change its image around the world of its plight, uh, primarily because it started having some students that matured, that were able to explain what they were facing in English, regardless of what point of view you take on that. Uh, Ukrainians themselves, unlike, um, I would say, the Georgians, were better able to spread their message around the world because they had many English-speaking advocates. English is basically the franguilinqua of everything from business and international communication. It's it's notable that businesses in Taiwan and Japan, often when they sign contracts, is in English as well. So I think um, we could improve on that front. And of course, you know, citing Philippines and Japan as an example of, of why English isn't, you know, necessarily useful. I have to say, as a person who has done business in Japan, their English levels are are not up to par, I think. Uh, Singapore would be a better example. Hong Kong would be a much better example. As for the Philippines, they have a thriving language market where they teach Asians, where Asians fly there to the Philippines to learn English because it's actually cheaper than going to uh, uh, more expensive nations. So on a bigger macro level, I do think there's a lot of benefits to this uh, bilingual nation plan. I also feel that Complaining that it adds complexity is there too. Now, how to manage the budget is a whole other topic, and how we can make that efficient, I think, is a whole other topic as well. Yeah, English is hugely important if you want to go, as you say, international business, and especially in a culture that uh, business is first and foremost about personal relationships. So you can't really build a personal relationship by running things through Google Translate. Or ChatGPT. Or ChatGPT, at least not yet. I don't know if you've played around with that thing, but it's uh, <laughs> it leaves a lot to be desired. Um, so English is important. And right now, who do you get learning English? You get uh, people in the best schools, the young kids who are in the best schools, maybe the most expensive schools. Maybe their parents pay for bushy bonds to have them go and on their own time, learn to improve their English. And so if you don't have money, If you're poor, if you're from a poor family, 
what do you do? You just can't afford that. And so you should have, if the government is able to give that kind of instruction or get, uh, create that kind of environment where everyone can learn English uh, to a degree that will help them achieve not only their, their own personal success in life, but the, uh, the country's success. Because as you pointed out, the countries that are most proficient in English are going to attract the most of the business exchanges with the West. And again, not, uh, not only business. English is the international language of flight, of patent applications. Everything goes through English. Uh, so it's hugely important. However, I see where you're coming from. I understand that like, a, an official bilingual, uh, bilingual policy would not be – that really wouldn't make sense for Taiwan. Even in Canada, we have official bilingualism, and it's, it's arguably been less than successful. Uh, so this is not something you'd, you want to you'd want to implement here in Taiwan. Do you think maybe Sean, they, maybe had the government changed the name uh, when I they start when they came up with this great idea? They they called it what well, they called it the bilingual nation. Maybe if they not called it the bilingual nation, and everyone went, "Whoa!" But we speak Taiwanese, we speak Hakka, we speak Mandarin, and we speak English. So which two languages are you talking about? I do think there's a branding problem, of course. Uh, you know, it, it, for uh, expats, when they hear bilingual 2030 or bilingual nation, they, they're like, yeah, right, that's not going to happen. For expat teachers who are in Taiwan, they, 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 they are highly critical of how that can be done, considering how few hours of English instruction they can give, even under the current plan. Uh, of course, if they change it to some sort of name, like an international opportunity, English Plus, or what have you, um, I do think it would do better. I, I just wanted to point out something that, as Dean said, many of the top leaders in Taiwan, including the president, is bilingual. Many of the top corporations and brands are led by CEOs that have studied abroad from ACES to ACER to you name it. Uh, so I do think there is a need for this kind of thing. I do know it's going to be expensive, of course. And I do know there's very few models around the world that makes it easy to do so. So, uh, But I do think it's, it's important to have that option available somehow, somewhere. And indeed, as Dean said, uh, you know, there's a reason why many of the more well-to-do families in Taiwan will send their kids to schools like KCIS or, or, or uh, you know, uh, Taipei uh, American School or Taipei European School or, you know, there's major ones in every city. There's a demand for that. But unless you're relatively wealthy, you can't afford that. So I do think let's Taiwan has many people who live in the rural, many students that are bright. Let's give them that opportunity and focus on that instead. So I, I'm for the, the officials that are saying that maybe we should do some reformation of that. Uh, I'm not sure if starting a whole new body to handle this when we already have one is the best idea. Uh, but those that say we should scrap it because students uh, you know, may not learn so much or it's too hard for them or you know, if, if they learn English, they'll be bad at Chinese and things like that. It doesn't sound very legitimate to me. What I think should be done is let's try our best and see what we can do with this. And moving on now, there's been an outpouring of sympathy and condolences this week following the death of sculptor Ju Ming, who was found dead this past Saturday at the age of 85. Now, prosecutors have said that Ju's death was an apparent suicide after years of chronic health problems. Ju was, of course, known for his depiction of people through sharp-edged block shapes, with his most famous sculptures being those in the Tai Chi series, which basically you've probably seen. If you haven't, go and have a look. Now, while politicians were busy expressing their 
deepest condolences over Jews' death, publicly debate in chat rooms and on social media was focusing on assisted suicide and whether Taiwan should legalise euthanasia. Now, Health Minister Shui Reiyuan responded to that debate on Wednesday, saying he believes it's improper for the government to take the lead on whether to legalise assisted suicide and debate on the issue of suicide which should be made with caution and start from the grassroots. Now, according to the health minister, the crux of the issue is that it doesn't just involve a person who is ill and wants to end their life, but also another individual who has to actively assist them, and that responsibility currently falls to medical personnel. And the health minister went on to say that, well, even if there is a legal basis for euthanasia here in Taiwan, medical professionals may be unwilling to participate, Dean. So, legal euthanasia in Taiwan. Well... Legal euthanasia in Canada. Uh, this has become a big talking point these days. It's a big topic of discussion, I should say, because uh, we started this process uh, years ago and we're having difficulties with it now. It's sort of gone off the rails, according to some people, uh, depending on who you talk to. Uh, at first, it was a good idea. It was like, okay, yes, we have em empathy for you. We have sympathy for what you're going through. And if you want to end your life and it's your decision, we will help you. But now we have government uh, employees talking to people who are suffering, people who have uh, difficulties uh, with their health, uh, call up the assistance line veterans, for example. Uh, at least five Canadian Armed Forces veterans uh, were just out of the blue offered medically assisted death by uh, um, officials with the Veterans Affairs Canada program. One in particular, a Paralympian. She was a Paralympian. She was a, uh, a veteran. Uh, she she called up the hotline and says, uh, I'm looking to have a wheelchair lift installed in my home. Can I get assistance with that? And they said, you know what? Have you thought about end of life? So it's gone a little bit far in Canada. And this is something... So the the hesitancy to really dive into it into the deep end in, in Taiwan is probably a good impulse and one that should be followed. Yeah, I, I do think that... Um Personally, I feel that uh, the legalization of euthanasia uh, should be an option, uh, a better option, because, you know, it's end ending suffering is actually quite important. Uh, people who are in palliative care, uh, who have severe illnesses and are in constant pain should have an out, uh, a proper out. Now, uh, one of the major issues we have right now is that um, I actually disagree with those that think that the government shouldn't be uh, taking the lead on euthanasia. I think they should provide that option for those that can get family and personal approval for that. Uh, there are many cases in Taiwan of those who are uh, stuck for maybe even decades, actually, of, including one of my relatives uh, who is uh, in a permanent uh, vegetative comatose state. And there's, there's no way to bring them back, medically speaking. And it's not like television, there's not going to be a miracle. And it's a heavy weight on all involved. So the, those are things that I think we need to be able to really consider that not every case is the same. So of course, we can start slowly because Taiwan is like, one of, like I said before, door opens really slowly. Let's get um, boards to our medical body to come together to approve these kind of things. So we slowly open the door in allowing this to happen. So we can measure 
in uh, all the pitfalls and everything. Um, because Taiwan is an aging society. And Sean, do you see a referendum on this issue in the near future? <laughs> I don't know about a referendum, but there's been numerous times where um, Taiwan has tried to pass like a Hospice Palliative Care Act, I think back in like 2017 or 18, uh, some years ago, or the Patient Right to Autonomy Act and all these other bills. There's a high, last time I read, there was a 70, 70 between different polls, 70 to 90% support in Taiwan for this kind of thing. So that's a high percentage. I feel like if this is what the population thinks is should be right, then we should offer it. But we don't have to offer full-fledged, you know, like Futurama suicide booths. <laughs> <laughs> but we could, uh, let's, let's get the, do- let's move forward with it. Take a small step forward. Yeah, I don't know uh, whether the government's involvement is a good thing or a bad thing. It seems to me it's between the individual or at least the family yeah. and the doctor or the medical care provider from whatever whatever tradition. And the, 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 the least amount of interference from the government, uh, I would think, is the better. And uh, whether uh, I, I really don't know where the culture is on that and how acceptable it is to sort of unofficially pull the plug, as it were, uh, because that is the most uh, the kindest thing to do, and then you get the government involved. Suddenly, you get laws, and suddenly you get people in the position of potentially having broken those laws, and uh, I think that restricts your options. So I, I'm a big believer in making those decisions among as a family, as a community, as opposed to enacting legislation. And before we go this week, environmental groups are calling on the government to set enforceable regulations on light pollution and to ensure there's greater awareness of, well, light pollution issues. Now, that statement came after the International Dark Sky Association warned that Taiwan is among the countries with the most severe light pollution globally. And apparently Taiwan ranks 19th worst in the world, Dean. Yeah, I don't know. The International Dark Sky Association uh, gives me pause. Just the name. Uh, dark skies are wonderful. Uh, if you're at sea or out in the desert or up in the mountains and there's no light around, it's beautiful to see the stars. Maybe you can see the Milky Way. Uh, but it seems to me that the International Dark Sky Association is just another group that wants to you know, move us all back into caves, basically. Uh, get rid of everything that's modern and convenient of the modern world. I mean, when you think about, when you think about what happened before the advent of uh, artificial light at night, what they call Alan, A-L-A-N, artificial light at night, and medieval cities, they would prepare for nightfall the way they would prepare for a battle or a storm. They'd lock the city gates. All the residents would retreat indoors. There were citywide decrees. Uh, in 1380, one in Paris stipulated that all houses must be locked at night and the keys must be deposited with the magistrate to ensure added safety. Nighttime was death time. It was a very difficult time to live in those days. And then we discovered artificial light. We implemented it around the world. And we, you know, civilization flourished. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, if you watch lots of movies from back then, apparently they had a vampire problem as well. So, of course. But I I do think that there are certain measures that Taiwan has taken, which are somewhat positive. For example, um, certain highways that go through uh, areas that are, you know, more natural or surrounded by forests or what have you in Taiwan uh, have enforced policies where they either dim the lighting or they actually shut them off. And it's not a problem because when you're driving on the highway in a car, you know, they have all the reflectors and everything. So it's very visible. uh, 
you know what? That's not bad. It's because from what I learned is that uh, lighting actually lighting at night uh, can affect uh, quite a lot of uh, of our natural insects and other creatures here, and uh, negatively. You know, uh, as in that it. Ends up killing lots of key uh, bugs, which results in certain birds, you know, uh, uh, starving to death. Blah blah blah. So there, there, there's there are problems with that. Now I do know the Dark Sky Association and similar uh, astronomy organizations are, are not a fan of you know cities being overly lit. I do think there are portions of our cities that are overly lit. Uh, you know, not every place has to be like Times Square, where you know uh, even during uh, blackouts they have generators that make sure that Times Square is never shut off. You know, we're not asking for that. However, do I think we could use better lighting now that we have better LED devices and so forth? Yeah, sure. Uh, you could do minor things to make it uh, a little bit better. N- another thing is that also, not every... Um, highway or certain streets need to be blasted super bright all throughout the entire night. What I mean is like maybe 3 to 6 a.m., there are places where you can sort of tone that down. Other things, places where we can improve. For instance, it starts getting light around about 5 a.m. here in Taipei, uh, especially during the summertime. Uh, you know, you could start actually walking around without needing any street lighting. Having better controls of that would also help too, because it seems like uh, street lights are still on all the way until quite often 6 a.m. So that's an extra hour you could adjust for. Uh, you know, and I do feel there should be zones in Taiwan or certain parks, uh, public parks, for example, that don't necessarily need lights for every path uh, all throughout the night. And they are starting to do that. uh, But, you know, that could also help, too. Of course, Dean, you've lived in New York. Would you like to see parts of Taipei turn the lights out? I'd like to see parts of New York turn the lights out. (laughs) (laughs) It's the city that never lets you sleep. But uh, you're right about Times Square. Times Square is insane. It's constantly lit. It's it's on all the time. And you're right. Not every city needs to be a New York, and not every region and neighborhood needs to be a Times Square. Uh, so I, I think there's I think if uh, if there, there's a good conversation to be had here about finding a happy medium. Uh, I'm uncon I'm unconvinced by some of the arguments. For example, Ruskin Hartley, who's the CEO of International Dark Sky Association. Uh, talked about the issues as having implications for public health, climate change, and economic activity. Uh, economic activity, yes, I can see it, but that just allows you to keep your businesses open longer, keep your stores open longer. Taiwan is very much like, I'll go out and I want to buy something, and I'll, I'll be shopping, and I'll go to the store, and at 11 o'clock it's not open yet, 11 in the morning. But they're open till midnight. People live their lives on the street. People, There's a, there's a buzz and activity, the night markets. Uh, nighttime is the right time in Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, this is just part of the culture and it's part of the lifestyle and it's very vibrant and it's fantastic and I love it uh, to, to shut down the lights and just order everyone to bed uh, and I know that's not what we're talking about. I, I'm no. using reductio <laughs> ad absurdum here. Uh, I, but I, I'm especially unconvinced that it, it, that it has anything to do with climate change. I think this is just a, look, we want to make this change. We want to be activists. We have to throw in climate change into the, uh, into the argument because otherwise no one will pay attention to us. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Sean Su. It's great to be back again. And by Dean Karalakis. Thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. 
Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.